First Chronicles, and uh, I want to go to chapter 21. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna read one verse because the story is kind of long, but this is where I, I'm going to kind of just extrapolate the thoughts and contents of of the sermon today. Um, being 100% honest with you, when I went to bed last night, I just I could not get clear direction this morning for for this morning. And so I I told the Lord, which is a horrible place to be as a pastor on Saturday night when you lay down and you don't know what you're going to preach on Sunday morning. And I told the Lord, you're just going to have to deal with me somehow in the night, preferably after daylight would be good. And uh, I want your will to be done. And so this is all I'm saying this morning. I don't know what the Lord was waiting on, but maybe he was waiting on you to decide I'm going to church this morning. Because the word that he has given me, I feel so strongly impressed. I know that it is of the Lord. First Chronicles chapter 21. If you're there, say amen. amen. We're going to go down to verse number 24. And King David said to Ornan, no, but I will verily buy it for the full price. Somebody say the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord. And this is powerful. Nor will I offer burnt offerings without cost. I'm not going to take what's yours and present that to God for me. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to offer to God for me. And he said, I'm not going to offer something to God that does not cost me. So this morning, with the help of the Lord, I feel deeply impressed by the Spirit of God to preach to you the cost of repentance. The cost of repentance. Could we pray together as a family? Great God, thank you for every man, every woman, and every child that has gathered in your house. Lord, you see hearts and lives, and you know the hunger that's in this place. And I pray, God, that if we walked in this house full today, that you would help us to empty ourselves out, that you may fill us with your word. And I pray that if we're hungry today, that we would be filled with the word of God. Lord, as always, I'm asking you as your servant today, that as I cast the seed of the word of God into this field today, that there would be fertile soil that would receive the precious word of God. The word is always good. The seed is always good. But you have told us, Lord, the difference is not in the seed, it's in the soil. So I pray today for the shallow soil that there would be depth today. I pray for the hard soil that you would break up the fallow ground. And I pray for the tender soil that it would receive the word of God and that there would be much fruit in Jesus' mighty name. Let the church say amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated in the house of the Lord today. Uh, it, it would literally be impossible, uh, perhaps, for me to preach this sermon without giving you the background of what's transpiring in this story. But this is the, um, the place that we, 
that we picked up on is the business acquisition between King David and Ornan, who is the man that owns the threshing floor or this place where the wheat is being threshed. It's, it's harvest time and Ornan has began to bring in the wheat and uh, this is what we call in the scripture Ornan's threshing floor. It is the place where the wheat and the chaff are separated. And uh, So th the power of this is that the Lord told David he needed to go make a sacrifice in a specific place. And that place was Ornan's threshing floor. But how did we get there? What was the sacrifice all about? Why was he sacrificing in the first place? And uh, the context of this story is quite powerful to me. The Bible tells us in the beginning of the chapter that Satan, Satan, stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, whether this be Lucifer himself, uh, Satan, or whether this be Satan in, in the Hebrew context as it is written as an evil spirit, uh, so to speak, is coming to Israel and provoking, provoking David to number Israel. Now, when you read this story, it's kind of like, okay, so what? He counted the people. Why does it matter that he counted the people? And why was the devil involved in counting the people? Why did the devil provoke him? And this is something today that could literally be preached on its own. But I want you to understand that the provocation of David numbering Israel is what caused the provocation of God to respond to David in requiring repentance. And what David was doing by numbering Israel is he was deciding whether or not God was able to do what he said he would do by what he had. David numbered the people because David wanted to know if their victory or their loss was predicated on what they had. And I've come to tell you on this Sunday morning that the greatest revelation that you're going to have about who you are with God is that I will never be enough on my own to do the will of God. I can never number everything in my life and know that because I finally got enough that I can finally do the will of God. As a matter of fact, I found it to be quite the contrary in my life living for God that there is an abundant amounts of time in my life that when I step out to do the will of God, I walk out inadequate to do the will of God. I take the step of faith as did Peter getting out of the boat. Peter didn't have on flotation devices. When he stepped out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus, it wasn't because he had on floaties. In other words, there was nothing Peter could have ever done to have made him more buoyant then taking the step of faith and saying, okay, if it's you, God, if it's you, Jesus, then bid me to come. And so realizing that the will of God being accomplished in your life will never be accomplished because you're good enough. 
is a powerful revelation. If I was good enough, I could do it on my own. If I was good enough, I wouldn't need God. So David starts numbering and he says, let's take an inventory and see what we've got. It's a dangerous place to be when you start numbering things in your life. And I'll tell you why. Because you can get so consumed with what you have that you start believing that you will always have enough whether God is in the picture or not. It doesn't matter how many people you've got, David, when you've got God on your side. It does not matter how many you can number in Israel. If you've got more than you think you should have, God knows how to take it away. But if you don't have enough, God knows how to make up the difference. And it is a lie. It is a lie. It is a lie. It is a lie that the enemy sells us all the time. That the will of God cannot be done in our life because of our inadequacies. Because you fell short, then God can't do the job. It's a lie. It's always been a lie. And it always will be a lie. I want to tell you today, you are not enough because of who you are. You are more than enough because of who God is. I am not. I am not victorious today because I could do it on my own. But I am victorious today because I realize it is not by might, it is not by power, it is by the Spirit of the living God. It is by the Spirit of the living God. And so, I know this probably seems at first glance, if you go back and read this story like, man, this is, God is, God's pretty heavy on David for numbering, but I, I think once you, you understand the context of the magnitude of the sin, you understand why God was frustrated. He wasn't mad because David was counting. He was, God was frustrated because of what David was putting hope in. But if we ever get big enough, then we don't have to rely on God. Look, I'm going to tell you, standing in front of this congregation today, very transparent, I'm wide open. My heart is on the table today. I want this church to grow. We are growing. We, we are absolutely growing. Sunday mornings and Sunday nights have been amazing. The guests that we've had and the people that are coming, and we want that. But I'm going to tell you something. Hear me good today. We will never be so big that we don't need him. Never. I don't, I don't care what our next building looks like, and it's happening. I don't care how big the next sanctuary is, and it's coming. But I'm going to tell you, if we seat 5,000 people and pack it out wall to wall, we will never be a church that doesn't need God. We are not numbering what we've got to show this city how powerful we are. We are standing in direct defiance to the powers of the enemy and saying no weapon that you ever form against us will be more powerful than the God that is with us and the God that is for us. Testimony to this city will never be how big this church is, but our testimony to this city will always be how big our God is. And our God is bigger than any mountain in your life. Our God is bigger than any addiction in your life. Our God is bigger than any trouble in your life. He is the greatest power. He is the greatest power. I still believe that this morning. 
I understand the pathway to some's deliverance may look different in their lives and they may feel like they've got to go through all kinds of programs and I'm not against programs but I'm going to tell you you can never have enough programs you better be careful when you start numbering your programs that we've seen this many drug addicts delivered because of we passed this many through our program we've seen this many alcoholics delivered because we took this many through our program I'm going to tell you, I thank God for anybody that's, that's running rehabilitation programs and all that. But if you're ever ultimately set free, it's not going to be by the power that you learn in a book. It's going to be by the power of the living God that dwells within you. And I still believe it this morning that the solution to our problem has always been and always will be the power of God. I believe that. So David tells Joab to go and, and to number Israel, and he said, I want you to number from Beersheba to Dan, and uh, I want you to bring the number to me, verse three, uh, verse 2, he said, that I may know it. I want you to bring the number to me that I may know it, because my confidence is in the number. My confidence is in our growth. My confidence is in how we have expanded. I want to know the number. So Joab answered, the Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause to the trespass of Israel? Oh my goodness, I wish I had time to stop there. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. There was a warning from God that came through the mouth of Joab and said, you do know that this is not going to make God happy. Nevertheless, David prevailed. There will come a time in your life, if you're not careful, that you will strong-arm conviction so much that God will finally let you prevail with what it is you want to do. The warning came, and I, if I could draw a parallel for you, I would say that Joab was standing in the pulpit of David's life, preaching the word to him, and saying, why would you do this when you know that this is going to cause Israel to trespass against God? And nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Your word may prevail against Joab, but your word will never prevail against God's word. All I'm saying to you is I love people. And I always want to believe the best in people. But because I love people so much, I want to believe that people wouldn't really do that to God. I want to believe that people really do love God. And if I have a fault, it's probably that I love people too hard. And I will admit that to you today. Because there, there may be a season in your life that you can pull the wool over your pastor's eyes. And you, you, may, be, you may be able to, to fool me. And you may be able to make me think that everything is alright in your life. But I'm telling you that God does not just measure a man by what's seen when you walk through the doors of a church. But God measures the heart of a man and the heart of a woman by what is happening behind closed doors. 
And all that we're seeing here is that David was in a private battle that David was losing. And even when the warning came from Joab and said, this is going to break the heart of God and it's going to be a trespass against God, he said, I don't care who I upset and I don't care who it makes mad. I am going to prevail in my word. And so, the Bible said that they started numbering, and I don't have time to go into all the numbering, all the men that drew the sword. Uh, Levi and Benjamin was a specific deal that, that was in this. But verse 7 said, God was displeased. Somebody say, God was displeased. Do you know that sloppy, agape gospel promotes a God that never gets displeased? Modern religion wants us to preach a message that says God's never displeased with you. He loves you just like you are. Well, his love for me has never been the question. I mean, while we were yet sinners, his love for me has never been the question. The question is whether or not the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are acceptable in thy sight. Every now and then, it doesn't matter how spiritual we feel, let me admonish you in the Holy Ghost today. It would do us good to take a step back in a prayer closet and say, God, is my life pleasing to you? Are the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm doing, are they pleasing to you? I think it would behoove all of us to ask God the question, has my life displeased you? Why would we do that if we can still be used in leadership and we can still be used, well, I don't have time to stay there all day, but I think you understand. If I can still feel God, I'm okay. If I can still come to church and have good church, then I'm okay. I'm going to tell you right now, there are people that can dance, shout, speak in tongues with the best of them that have displeased God. Your spirituality is not measured just by what we see. Your spirituality can only be measured by that intimate moment with you and God when you ask God the question, am I pleasing to you? And God's gentle hand rests on you and says, yes, yes, you are pleasing to me. My hand is upon you. But I'm going to tell you the most devastating place in the world that you could ever be on this side of eternity is that moment when God takes his hand that was rested on you and lifts it off of you and tells that hedge of angels that's been around you, disperse because I've lifted my hedge off of the man. You know what causes the hand of God to be removed off somebody's life? When they displease God and it doesn't bother them anymore. When they displease God and the arrogance of the spirit of the man says there's no need for repentance in my life if I can still feel God and I can still have good church there's no need for repentance and this is the danger of being led around by the feels can I preach this morning I know this is heavy this is heavy for some people in here but but listen listen to me it's dangerous 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 to be led around by the fields if I could talk to you about about Isaac and Jacob and Esau and the blessing and all of that I really do wish 
that I could preach that whole story. But when he's going to bless his sons, and the Bible said that his vision had grown dim, and Esau was out hunting, right? And Jacob was there, and, and, and his mother said, well, hey, listen, let's just make some, let's make some stew for your dad. And he'll think that it's the venison that Esau has brought. And she said, so, so I, want you to take, I want you to take some animal skin and put it on you because your brother Esau's hairy. And so he walks in, and his dad, his dad can't see him. He, his vision has grown dim. He can't see him. And, and she knew. She knew exactly what he was going to do. He said, come here and let me feel. And he reaches out, and he, he feels his arm, and he says, mm, it's odd because you sound like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. And his blessing wasn't predicated on what he could hear or see anymore. He started blessing what he felt. And it's a dangerous place to be when you're with God. And you can't hear, you, you, you can't hear like you used to hear. It's not as clear as it used to be. And you don't have the vision that you used to have. You got to be careful because when you live your life based on feeling, you're going to start blessing the wrong things. I'm trying to take you somewhere this morning. I'm watching that clock like a hawk this morning. I don't, I don't want to wear you out. They were making fun of me. I'm going to tell them, marriage ministry the other night, they were making fun of me. They were making fun of me, preaching long, saying your, your pot roast is going to burn. Well, today I don't even want to char it. But the Lord was displeased. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, notice the spirit, do away with the iniquity of thy servant because I've been foolish. And the Lord God spake to David, seer, to Gad, the prophet. He said, you go tell David, I'm giving you three choices. This is so powerful. He said, you're going to pick one of the three. Verse 11, so Gad came to David and he said, the Lord said, choose. Verse 12, he said, either three years of famine or three months to be destroyed before your foes, while that the sword of thy enemies overtake thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coast of Israel. Now, therefore, advise thyself what word I shall bring unto him that sent me. What a conversation. The Lord said you got three choices. What was he really saying? There's a price to pay. Now it's not often you get to choose. But he said, I'm going to give you three choices. There is a penalty. You're going to pay it. David said to Gad, I'm in a great strait. I'm not in a good place. Let me fall. Lord have mercy. This is so powerful. Let me fall in the hand of the Lord. For great, somebody say very great. Very great. Woo! This preaches itself right here. Let me fall in the hand of the Lord. For very great are his mercies. Can I tell you something this morning, precious people of God? If you're here in this house this morning and you're cold and you're indifferent and you've been separated from the will of God and you know that, you don't need to fall in the hands of a church. You don't need to fall in the hands of your pastor. 
you know that God's working on somebody when they say, let me fall in the hands of the Lord. For his mercies are very, very great. I'm here, I'm here to reach for somebody and tell you today, his hands are still a safe place to fall. His hands are still a safe place to be. Yes, I have failed God. Yes, I have ran from God. But today, I'm making up in my mind, I'm going to fall in the hands of God. There's no better place to be than in the hands of God. I want to be in his hands because his mercies are very, very great. So now you kind of have the context of the story. So the Lord says to David, he says, here's how we're going to do this. Because my mercy is great, you recognize that, you've fallen in my hands. You can read the rest of the story later. But he says, I want you to go specifically to Ornan's threshing floor and I want you to offer a sacrifice to me there. Now this is a cool deal because the floor, the threshing floor, the place that he's purchasing way later, we believe became the Temple Mount. So it was a purchase that was like an everlasting agreement. So this is uh, for the people that are caught up in this whole war back and forth of who does it belong to. We have the deed. Right here. Before there was ever a place called Palestine, David bought it for God's people. Like we, we got the deed. It's here. He bought it. And so this is a powerful thing. The Lord names a specific place and says, I want you to go there. And there's going to be a cost for your repentance. So David comes. Ornan sees him. It's in the middle of threshing season he is threshing the wheat which means that if David's going to purchase this ground then Ornan has to stop his his harvest to sell this land and he sees this great angel and he falls back and he says oh my goodness what can I do for you it's the king and uh, he says look I need this land and I need to make an offering and he says look not only will I give you this land but he says I'll I'll give you the bullock I'll, whatever you need I'll I'll give that to you for the sacrifice. David said, no. Because I'm the one that had to fall in the hands of God. Oh man, I'm fixing to preach right here. It might get tight for just a second. David said, I cannot expect anybody else to repent for me. If I am truly repentant, I'm not pointing my fingers at somebody else. Woo! If there's truly repentance in my spirit, I'm not pointing at you and saying, well, you did this. Isn't that what we do as kids? Did you get in the cookie jar? Yeah, but Billy did too. I'm not talking to Billy. You ever had those moments with God where you feel that conviction? You're like, yeah, but old Bill Rick over here, he done the same thing. Well, I'm not talking to him. You fell in my hands, recognize my mercy. Do you want this forgiveness or not? Oh my goodness. He said, David, if there's going to be true repentance, there's going to be a cost. It's going to cost you. 
And so David said, I'm not going to make a sacrifice to God that does not cost me. Now I'm going I'm to preach for the next few moments to you about the true disaster that we have made out of authentic repentance. Repentance has become absolutely one of the most misunderstood, misquoted, misled portions of who we are in the Word of God. There was a quote by the late Leonard Ravenhill. I had several of his books in my library. He was a British preacher, but I like quoting him because you can't get mad at me. Leonard Ravenhill said, the sinner's prayer has sent more people to hell than all the bars in America. Because we have, we have made repentance and I'm sorry session with God. Are you all with me? That if I just come to the Lord and say I'm sorry, and we actually lead people that way. We lead children that way. When we tell them to repent, just tell God you're sorry. Look, I'm not here to cross theological swords with anybody. But the more I study repentance and the more I try to understand it in my life, I want you to understand that repentance is not telling God you're sorry. That's confession. Are you all with me today? Repentance was when, or, 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 or confession was when David said, I'm in a strait. I need to fall in the hands of God. Repentance is not getting down saying, God, I'm a big dummy. Look at what I've done. Look at all the trouble that I've made. And, and, and I'm sorry that I did that. And if I may just be bold and brave and strong with you right now, I'm going to tell you why repentance is not just a prayer. It's because talk is cheap. I can tell God anything I want to tell God. I can say anything I want to say, but God knows what's behind those white pearly gates and that red tongue that I'm speaking. God knows the heart of a man, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But sometimes there's a disconnect that we can say things we don't believe in our heart. And I can say to God that I'm sorry for my sin, but know that when I get up from the conviction that I feel, I'm going to go right back to what I just told God I was sorry for. Now, repentance is as much a part of the plan of salvation as baptism. Are y'all bored this morning? You doing okay? I thank God for it. Look, it's not up for debate. I didn't write it. You can see it from Genesis to Revelation. The context is there. It's going to take death, burial, resurrection, period. Like, it, it's not a new concept. Jesus said it, except a man be born again. There's only one way to be born again. is water and the Spirit. Everybody that was born again in the New Testament church in the book of Acts, they were all born again the same way. They weren't baptized in multiple different varieties. And in Acts 19, when they had been baptized in John's baptism, they were told you need to be rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And so they were all baptized in Jesus' name. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. But I'm going to tell you, because we don't read it, we don't, we don't pay as much attention to it. Repentance 
Acts 2.38, they were pricked in their hearts in 37. Then they said to Peter and the 11, men and brethren, what shall we do? The first thing off of the tongue of the apostle Peter was not hurry up and get baptized. Oh, sweet Jesus. Y'all, it's about to get tied up in here. And I didn't mean for it to. Listen, the first words off of his mouth were, we believe in speaking in tongues around here. Do you know why we love the focus on baptism and infilling of the Holy Ghost so much? Because it's easy to measure. We can put it on a slide that we've had 57 baptized this year. We went and preached a crusade and had 139 get the baptism of the Holy Ghost. What I really want you to understand is that if we're going to do this in alignment with heaven, it's in Luke chapter 15 and I believe verse number 10, if I'm not mistaken, where, the script, where, the, where Jesus said that, that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Not when somebody's baptized in Jesus' name, not when they're filled with the Holy Ghost, but when one sinner repents. Because if you've truly repented, you're not going to argue with God whether tongues are necessary. If you've truly repented, you're not going to argue with God whether baptism is necessary. When you've repented, you've paid the price and said, whatever I've got to do, I'm going to do it because I've fallen in love with you. I believe you only have to be baptized one time. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, above all, through all, in you all. I believe you only have to be baptized in Jesus' name one time. I believe that. One time. But I'm going to tell you something. I've got to repent. Because it's not just an activity. It's a way of life. Every day. I get to walking. It, years ago in my flight training, when we, when we started learning visual flight rules and things like that, you know, India, it's hard to find a mountain to stare at in Indiana. And they'd say, find something out there in the distance and focus on it, just fly that direction. I'm like, what I'm looking for? There ain't nothing out there. They're like, well, just find a street. There's a lot of those. There's cornfields. Hey, found one. But there's a there's a thing that happens when you're flying. You know, flying's like swimming in a river. Anybody here? I know you young people are like, Ew. anybody here ever swim in a river? Did you ever get a surprise when you're standing at the river and you're like, I'm going to go over there. And so you jump in and you start swimming. And when your head comes up out of the water, you're trying to go over there, but you're over here. And you're like, oh my goodness. It's the way flying is. The wind starts blowing you and you, you're like, well, I'm maintaining my course. What? You may think you're maintaining course, but you're not going to go where you thought you were going. Because the wind's blowing. So I'm, I'm flying. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I'm not making corrections, there is a difference. And I'm not here to bore you with aviation. There is a difference in my course and in my track. My heading is the direction that I'm supposed to be going. But my track is what's going to take me. That's the way I'm actually going. 
So sometimes if I'm trying to go one direction and the wind's blowing me the other, I've got to make a correction so that my track is correcting with where I'm supposed to be going. And I'm here to tell you this morning that it's easy when you come to church and you get around, well, I, I don't have to pray as much as I used to. You better be careful. Because these old winds are blowing stronger than they've ever blown. They're blowing people off track like, well, I'm, I'm, st I'm still in the right heading. I'm still doing the same thing. But you got to correct. That is repentance. It's not a one-time prayer. It's a constant work. What's your spirit saying? Where does your spirit want me to go? Where are you leading me today? Is there a conversation that I need to be in? What is your spirit saying to me? The cost of repentance is that it's going to cost you everything every day. Every day. You don't ever outrun the cost of repentance. One soul repenting brings joy in the presence of the angels of God. If you read that in context, it's pretty neat because it really, we, we used to hear people quote all the time, it said angels rejoice. It's not what it says. It says there's joy in the presence of the angels. And if the, if the angels are, are in the presence of God, that means God's rejoicing. When sinners repent. When somebody gets baptized and they leave and never come back. They wanted to do something that was an act of faith so they could let everybody know I made my decision. But I'm going to tell you something. God's not basing your relationship on him with your public decision. God's basing his relationship with you on that private decision every day. God are the words of my mouth. The meditation of my heart, are they acceptable in thy sight? How moldable is my spirit? As you're forming me, how much am I fighting you? By doing good. Well, Brother St. Clair, you're just really, you're just, trying, you're just trying to make this harder to live for God because we know that you're only saved by grace through faith and, and that's it. There's nothing you could do. And so I'm going to deal with that before I close. But I want to tell you that repentance truly is not so much about forgiveness. That's baptism. Baptism is for the remission of sin. You all with me? Confession is telling God you're sorry. But repentance is not nearly as much about what God is offering me. As it is what I'm offering God. So, if, so you're saying if I tell him I'm sorry, then he gives me his spirit. And that's, that's the way we present it. If you'll repent, he'll fill you with the Holy Ghost. That's not repentance. Because I'm not repenting to see what he'll give me. I'm repenting because I can't do this without him. I'm repenting because I can't live without him. You may have tried it on your own. You may have tried to find the answer in a bottle. You may have tried to find the answer in a pill. You may have tried to find the answer in the syringe. But repentance is saying, God, I've tried it all, and it's all failed me, and I've got to have you. Repentance is that desperation in, the, in a voice that when people tell you, quiet down, calm down, they're going to think you're a spiritual nut. They're going to think you're overcome with religion. I'm not overcome with religion. I've fallen in love with Jesus, and I've got to have him. Come on. I can't live without him. I 
I can't breathe without him. I don't want to live without him. I've got to have him. Repentance is not nearly as much about asking God what he will do as it is showing God what you will do. Are you hearing me? It's not as much about asking God what he will do as it is me showing God what I will do. Well, Pastor, you just can't, you, you just, you just can't tell people that in order to be saved, they've got to live a life of separation and repentance. Hang on a second. Repentance tells God my intentions. Shows God my intentions. And I'm not going to argue with anybody. I sincerely believe that salvation is free. It's been paid for. He paid the debt. Salvation is absolutely, oh God help me, it's on me right now. Salvation is free. Relationship is not. He paid for my salvation, but I've got to pay for the relationship. He paid that I could be free from sin, but I've got to pay the price if I want to stay free from sin. He brought me out, but I've got to stay in. I'm not talking about whether or not you deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to be saved. I'm saved by grace through faith, but I choose repentance so that I can have a relationship with him. I'm hurrying. I'm almost done. But I'm going to tell you all something today. We look at the, that, at the divorce rates in America and we talk about, but I'm going to tell you why. It's because there's a spiritual parallel that people are divorcing God all the time. They come to a baptistry and take his name and walk away. It's the same thing as going to an altar and taking a new name and just walking away. Because that marriage is free. But the relationship is not. You can go to Vegas, shake hands with somebody and say, you want to get married? Sure, why not? Let's go to the chapel. Cool, we're married. But are you going to have a relationship? So when I come and I say, God, I want you to fill me up with your spirit. I want to take on your name. And we walk right back out and say, I don't know, church is kind of overrated. It costs too much, really. I'm not a fan. It takes so much of my time. Whose time? Because I'm going to tell you, every time I breathe in. I just borrowed that. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. Pour out our praise. It's your breath in my lungs. So I choose you today. Whatever you want from me, it's not too much. Whatever you ask of me, it's not too much. It's your breath in my lungs. I give it to you. I'll walk with you.
the music comes today, I've got to close. I want to say this again. Because I want to be sure you get this in your spirit. I don't care what anybody tells you this church preaches. I'm going to tell you what we believe as the, as the senior pastor and shepherd of this church. I'm going to tell you what we believe. Brother Small, we believe salvation is free. That's what we believe. We don't believe there's any other way that we are brought to salvation in Jesus Christ than by grace through faith. That's it. But I must be born again. I'm not teaching that. Jesus taught that. Got to be born again. But there is a cost to repentance. That is not just a prayer that you say one time so you can get the Holy Ghost. And most of the time when people are wrestling to get filled with the Holy Ghost, it's because they don't understand repentance. I know what I've tried. And I know what's failed. But I can guarantee you one thing. Jesus never fails. He never fails. Church people... They may fail because they're people just like people on your job. Church people may fail because they're church people just like your old family reunions. I'm going to tell you, if you're here for people, you may get disappointed. But if you fall in love with the master. (laughs) When you fall in love with the master. Whenever his spirit says, come a little closer. Quit that sin and quit, quit. You're better than that. You don't wrestle with God. You just say, you know what? I like your presence better than I like that old bottle. I like your presence better than I like that old lifestyle. And repentance starts working in your life. And you start leaning in the direction of the cross. Lord.